You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. Amen. Amen. Children will make their way to worship. While they're doing that, I want you to remain standing. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of James, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. John Williams, forgive me, I did not send you the title. The title of the message today, Why You Have Such Difficulty in Walking Out the Faith. Why You Have Such Difficulty in Walking Out the Faith. And that goes for me too. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Last week, we talked about the autopsy of a dead faith. And, and we looked at what a dead faith looks like. And James walked us through that, giving us some indicators. But now we're looking at a live faith, what a dynamic faith looks like. But we're going to go back, kind of get a running start. James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no what? No deeds. Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, and I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it, if, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend." You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works, without deeds is what? is dead. Let's pray again. Lord, we love you. We give you glory. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Warren Wiersbe wrote a commentary on the book of James. He titled it, Be Mature, How to Break the Mold of Spiritual Mature, How to Break the Mold of Spiritual Maturity and Grow in Faith. 
He went on to divide this section into three, into three separate little sections. The first one, and we looked at it last week, he called dead faith. In other words, dead faith is evidenced by a profession without any evidence. Now let me say that again. A dead faith is somebody who talks the talk, but they don't walk the walk. It's just merely verbal. It's just a, con a profession, but it has no evidence. It, uh, and, and James uses an example in James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He said it would be like a destitute person coming into this assembly here, perhaps a homeless person. You look at them, they're not clothed well, they're, they're, they're filthy, they, they, look, they look tired, they look beat up, they look wore out, just as sometimes we see them in our community. They look hungry, they look like they're thirsty, and you look at them and say and kind of wave your hand at him and said, listen, go in peace, be well and well fed. And James says, does that make any sense at all? You're verbally saying something, but it's not evidenced by any deeds, any action whatsoever. And all God's people said, amen. You see, real faith, living faith, will have not only coming out of the mouth, but it comes out of the heart, it comes through the hands. Now, that's important. Then he went on to talk about demonic faith. We kind of alluded to that last week. He said, you know, looking at verse 19, look at what he says here. He said, you believe there is one God. You're monotheistic. You believe in what the Jews said in the Hebrew language, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. He said, you believe that? He said, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You know, I heard John MacArthur make this statement. He said, you know, the demons have their theology better than a lot of Christians. He gave the example in Acts chapter 19, verse 15. You remember the sons of Sceva? Do you remember? They saw the power of the Holy Spirit on the Apostle Paul, and they saw Paul casting out demons. So the sons of Sceva, five sons, they thought they'd do the same thing. So they spoke to the demons and, and were trying to cast the demons out. Do you know what the demons said? They said, Jesus we know, they had their Christology right. Paul we know, they understood the church, the ecclesia. But who are you? And the Bible said the demons came out, attacked them, and they ran down the street. If I remember naked. You know, it's interesting here. James says here, listen, demons believe. In fact, he said they tremble. He uses here a Greek word, friso. It's the word that means shudder, to be stuck with extreme fear, to be horrified. It's only used here of demons. In other words, demons have a fear of God. Do you remember when the do you remember when Jesus came to the Gadarean, the demonic? And do you remember the, the man that was possessed came to him and and Jesus was getting ready to cast out the demons? First of all, he asked, What is your name? And you remember that old gravelly voice of the demon said, Our name is Legion, for we are many. And you remember Jesus was going to cast him out. Do you remember what the demons asked? They said, Lord, do not send us to the abyss before our time. 
They even had their eschatology correct. They said, cast us into the pigs, into the swine. And you remember he did that. He gave them what they wished, and the Bible said that the swine, over 3,000, ran over the cliff, possessed by demons. James said, listen, a dead faith? No. A demonic faith? No. He said, demons have that kind of faith. They even tremble, but it's still not enough. I wrote this down. Fear, now I want you to listen to this. Fear is not faith. Now, you and I need a fear of God, but the fear of God is an awe, a reverence of God. But the fear that the demons are expressing here is not faith. In John, 1 John 4, 18, listen to what John said, the beloved. He said, there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Now listen to what John said. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. In other words, the summation here, James has introduced us to two kinds of faith that cannot save the sinner. A dead faith, which is intellect only, or a demonic faith, which is intellect and emotions. The demons not only believed, they showed emotion. They feared. They shuddered. They were horrified. You remember the parable of the soils? We don't have time to go back to Mark chapter 40. But you remember the parable of the sower and the sower, the sower and the soils? You remember the sower was casting the seed. The seed was the gospel. And the gospel was falling on the path. It was falling on the rocky soil. It was falling on the weeds and the thorns and the thistles, and it was falling on good ground. You remember? It fell on the path, and what happened to that? It's what happens to a lot of people. The demons came and immediately took the seed and took it away. Some people will not hear the gospel because Satan has so infiltrated their heart and their life that as soon as they start hearing the truth, the enemy's right there to consume it, explain it. Tear it down, rip it apart. Accuser of the brethren, Diabolos, the father of lies. But he went on to talk about the, the seed that fell on the stony ground. I want you to listen closely. Jesus said these are people that see, they hear the gospel, and it springs up quickly, and, and it springs up quickly, it comes to life. But it has no root. And when adversity and difficulty comes, it dies. And Jesus said this, he said, these are people, I want you to listen, they receive the gospel with joy, with great emotion, but it doesn't have root. It doesn't lead to a changed life. Now, I want you to hear me. There are a lot of people that will die and one day go to hell because they had that experience in a revival service. They were baptized, they were dunked, but they were never saved. It's a dead faith. You know, Sheila, we're getting ready for Fourth um, of July, and Sheila wanted to get a, a, a water, one of those big water air jumping castles with the water and everything, you know, because we got 16 grandkids, so you need something to keep them busy, you know. And she said, man, this thing costs a lot of money. I can get a dunking machine a lot quicker and easier. It doesn't cost as much. And I said, well, that sounds good. Maybe we ought to get a dunking machine. Do you know what some people see that as? Nothing more than a dunking machine. They got dunked. They never got saved. 
Because let me tell you, when you truly get saved, when you repent and come to Christ, and you're truly saved, let me tell you what, you won't have to tell people you're a Christian, they'll know it. Because by the life you live. You see, this is what James was talking about. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a dead faith. It's not a demonic faith. He goes on to talk about a dynamic faith. In other words, uh, Ed McDaniels, Ed McDaniels would always say, he'd say, he'd say, look at Sheila, and he'd say, Sheila, you're the real deal. Gene Henderson, Dr. Gene Henderson, who retired from First Baptist Brandon, he'd always look and say, you're the real deal. Let me ask you something. Are you the real, de- are you the real deal? Because that's what James is talking about here. Now watch what he brings up. He brings up here two different characters. Down there in verse 23, well, down there in verse 20, 21, he says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did? And then he goes down and he brings up Rahab. Now, let me say this, and all of you remember Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. James tells us this. If you want to read about Rahab's life, go back to Joshua chapter 2. Because Rahab, you remember when Joshua... After Moses dies, Joshua's leading the people. They're going into the promised land. He sends two spies into the land. He didn't do what Moses did. Moses sent 12 and only two came back with a positive report. He figured, hey, I'm I'm not going to send 12 again. I'll just send two. He sent two. They go to the city of Jericho. Because that's the first city they're going to take. And when they get to the city of Jericho, they go to the prostitute's house. They go to the brothel. They go to, they go to Bourbon Street. You ever, burned a bur- you ever been to Bourbon? Oh, no, I'm not going to ask you that. When we were in New Orleans at the seminary, they'd send us down to Bourbon Street to witness. Can you imagine that? Here I am, a young guy in my 20s, going down there to witness. This is me witnessing. But here's Rahab. She's a prostitute. And the Bible says here that when Joshua sent the spies, then Joshua, uh, Joshua 2.1, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies, go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went, they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Wow, James gives two polar opposites here. They're radically different. Abraham's a Jew. Rahab's a Gentile. Abraham's an honorable man. Rahab is a harlot. Abraham is called the friend of God. Rahab is an enemy of Israel. And yet he puts them side by side. Boy, that's the body of Christ, isn't it? Man, don't you thank God that he, that he doesn't make any junk? Don't you thank God that he doesn't throw stuff away, that he loves us? Look what God does here. Look what James does. Now, first of all, he focuses on Abraham real quickly. Let me, let me say a couple of things. Abraham is called the father of the faith. Abraham is called the father of the Jewish people. Now, Abraham is a, is a very, very unique person in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 11 and 12, Abraham is called out of Ur, out of the Chaldees, and God tells Abraham, he said, Abraham, he said, listen, I want you to follow my will, my direction, and I'll make out of you a great nation. Abraham, the Bible said, believed God. He was 75 years old. In Genesis chapter 15, one day Abraham, God says, Abraham, come on, let's go, let's go for a walk. The Bible says Abraham was a friend of God. 
God takes Abraham outside under that desert sky. He looks up toward all of those stars. He said, Abraham, you see those stars? He said, one day, Abraham, your descendants, will, they'll outnumber the stars in heaven. Abraham was about 80 years old. He was married to an old woman, and they still didn't have children. But the Bible says in Genesis 15 that he believed God, and it was imputed to him righteousness. Imputed is meaning that it was put to his account. He became a righteous man because he believed God. That's what James is talking about. Then James brings up something else. He brings up in chapter, 20, in chapter 2, 21 through 24, he brings up this point where Abraham in Genesis 22 has to take his son, his only son, the son that he loves, the son Isaac that God had given him to fulfill that promise he made in Genesis 15. God says, I want you to take that son, the messianic line, I want you to take that son, I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to go to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice your son. And you know what the Bible says in Genesis 22? The Bible says he got up early he took Isaac, his son, he took the wood, he took the fire, he took his servants, and he went to Mount Moriah early in the morning. And at a certain point, he stopped and he told the servants, he said, you wait here, and I and my son will come back. Why? Because, I, because Abraham believed that even if God called him to sacrifice his son, that God had the power to resurrect his son. And he said this words, he said, I and the boy will come back to you. And the Bible said there came that point on Mount Moriah that Abraham lifts up that knife about to slay his own son to make that sacrifice when God stops him and out of, the, out of, that, out of that voice comes out and says, Abraham, Abraham, don't touch him. You know what Abraham had told Isaac all along? He said, Isaac, God, Isaac said, I see, I see the wood, I see the fire, I see everything, but where's the sacrifice? You know what Abraham said to his son? 15, 16 years old, he said, God will provide. And when God stopped him from that sacrifice, do you know what he saw? There was a ram caught by its head in a thicket of thorns. Everybody listen. That was a picture of that, of the cross of Jesus Christ. That was a picture of salvation and what God was saying to the father of the faith. Hey, listen, you're not sacrificing your son, but I will one day sacrifice mine. And James says, that is living real, the real deal faith. That's it. And then he goes on to talk about Rahab. She's a prostitute. She's a harlot. Spies stay in her brothel. I mean, the spies get into Jericho and they go to the red light district. In essence, like I said, it would be like going to, going to New Orleans and you go to Bourbon Street. They go to a brothel. They go to the red light district. They go to Bourbon Street. And there they meet this woman, this prostitute, this harlot named, named Rahab. And when they begin to disclose who they are, Rahab looks at them and says, I've heard of the Jewish people. I've heard of the manna from heaven. I've heard of the Red Sea parted. I've heard of the victories over Pharaoh's army. I've heard of other victories. And the Bible said that she looked at them and in that moment she began to exercise her own faith. And you know what these men said to her? 
He said, I tell you what, and listen to this. Everybody listen. A lot of us don't know this. One of the spies married Rahab. That's right. I, I, I would think it was that spy. You know what he said? He said, Rahab, listen. I love you. God loves you. And what I need you to do, and I know it's going to sound silly, I need you to take the red ribbon, and perhaps he pulled a red ribbon from her hair. He said, I want you to take this crimson red ribbon. And her home, the homes were built into the walls of Jericho. He said, I want you to take this red ribbon, and I want you to hang it outside the window. And when we see that red ribbon hanging out of that window, we will spare not only you, but all of your family, everyone in your home. And that, my friend, is a picture of that. The cross of Jesus Christ. And you know what Rahab did? I believe she went out. She told her family, she said, listen, we're about to be invaded by these people. And you and I, listen, we have an opportunity to be saved. If you'll come into my home, that's a picture, that's a picture of the church. If you'll come into my home, the body of Christ, if you'll, if, you'll, if you'll believe and you'll put your faith and trust in that red ribbon, which is a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ, because you can't be saved without the blood. Billy Graham speaking at a university campus. Billy Graham was an anthropology major. He was asked to speak to the anthropology department. He was thinking, man, they're going to go after me with everything they got because most college campuses do. So he said, he thought to himself, what am I, how am I going to start? He looked at them and he said, before you ask me any question, let me ask you one. You've studied the civilizations of all groups of people throughout history. Name one that did not believe in blood atonement. There's none. Why? Because God the Creator programmed within us this idea of blood atonement. Being saved. Of something outside of ourselves. So here she does. She, and this is a picture of faith. You know, I'm, I'm struggling here because I'm going to run out of time. And I really wanted to go another direction. But I cannot because we're, we won't have the time. So I'm not going to do it, I guess. So now I've got to figure out what I'm going to do. Because see, the bottom line is, you and I are either, we either have a dead faith, which is intellect only. We have a demonic faith, which is intellect and emotions. It was an emotional experience, but it never resulted in a change of behavior, a change of our life. Or either we have a dynamic, real changing faith, which we see evidenced in Abraham, and we see evidenced and Rahab. But why do we have so much trouble with that? In fact, I'm skipping a portion of the sermon, but I want you to take a left, and I want you to look at Galatians chapter 3, and I'm not going to keep you long today. But I'm going to tell you this. I, I am begging you for your undivided attention. Because for most of you in this room, including me, we all need this, okay? And all God's people said, amen. In, Je in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Now, everybody listen closely. This is critical. We are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. Grace and faith, God's will is that none perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's will, God doesn't, as Billy Graham said, kick the, heart, kick the door down of your heart and come in. God does this, just like he did at Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and will open the door, I will come in and fellowship with him and he with me. God offers you and I his grace, his love, his mercy, his unforgiveness. But listen, everybody listen, it's an unconditional love. But let me tell you what happens. You and I, through simple childlike faith, repent of our sin, put our faith in Jesus Christ, and we start this journey the Bible calls hagiosmos, sanctification. But the enemy gets in our head and before long begins to have us ticking off boxes. Well, I didn't look at this today, didn't listen to that today, I read this today, didn't read that today, said this today, didn't say that today. And before long, you and I are getting caught right back into a life of living in bondage as slave to the law. And before long, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies, begins to get into our head, and he says, listen, God's love is not unconditional. It is conditional. And what happens is we somehow fail to walk out our faith because we don't understand this thing of unconditional love. You know, a lot of high-profile Christians, worship leaders, people coming out of the contemporary worship, have you realized how many of them fall by the wayside? Let me tell you why a lot of high-profile Christians are falling by the wayside, and I'm not even going to say they're lost. I don't care even whatever they say. I think that you and I, and I want everybody to listen, I think you and I come up against a sin, a stronghold, an enemy, a tool of the enemy in our life, it may be an addiction. It may be a sin that does so easily beset you. For a lot of men, it's pornography. For a lot of men, it's lust. For a lot of men, it's sexual temptation. Women, it could be food. It could be gluttony's a sin. Whatever it is, the enemy, he'll, listen, he'll kill you with a baconator or kill you dead right now. He wants to shorten your life. If he can do it by what you eat and the health of... Hey, listen to this. You know what a doctor said? I was listening to an interview with a doctor prominent doctor you know what he said he said people who exercise none he said if they exercise three hours a week he said it will cut the cut the probability of their death by 50 percent you see you got an enemy he comes to what kill steal destroy so your enemy can't listen he can't kill you because jesus said i hold you in the palm of my hand he can't take your salvation because you and I, listen, are under the unconditional love, mercy, grace, and goodness of God through Jesus Christ, His Son. We're saved, we're sealed unto the day of redemption. That's what Paul said in Ephesians. So what, what's the enemy going to do? The enemy wants you to doubt God's unconditional love. 
The enemy wants you to begin to live and start ticking off the boxes. The enemy wants you to start living, believing that your salvation depends upon works and your deeds rather than God's grace. And we fail. I wrote this down. In fact, stand up and sit down. Stand up, sit down. Stand up. Now sit back down. Now make sure the person next to you is awake because you're not going to want to miss this. I wrote this down. Unconditional love is the most difficult task of faith. Grace can be a biblical theological term lost in familiarity. But unconditional love to all of us, it's awkward. It's like an open wound. It's unsettling. We're not used to it. Because we've been so disappointed so many times by those who we thought loved us, only to realize they loved us conditionally. We don't know what unconditional love is. Let me give you an example. Bruce Spring, because and let, let me tell you, and every parent needs to listen. Parents can basically love their children to a certain degree by being conditional. Their love is conditional. It's based on the child's obedience, performance, academics, sports, whatever it may be. Now, parents don't want to admit that, but they communicate to their child when they're pleased with their child, and usually it's because their child has done something good, right? So we're kind of programmed that way. We're programmed to think that all love is conditional, and so if it's conditional even by the people who raised me, then maybe it's conditional even with God. Listen to what Bruce Springsteen said. He said, he wrote of his father. He said, my father, listen to this, said fewer than a thousand words to me throughout my entire childhood. Bruce writes, I always felt that I could not earn my father's love. For decades I tried. He goes on to say, in the 1980s, now listen to what he's saying here, in the 1980s, I in my 30s, with a few Grammys, music awards, now I want you to listen, you watch how they, you watch, did you see what happened just then? I ask you to stand up, sit down, and I ask you to listen because this was going to be life-changing, and what happened? You were distracted. So now that you know that you need to listen, listen again. Bruce Springsteen went on to say, he said, my entire childhood, he said, my dad probably spoke a thousand words to me in my whole childhood. He said, I never measured up. I was never good enough. He said, here I was, a Grammy-winning music performer, Bruce Springsteen, but he said, in the 1980s, and I in my 30s, with a few Grammys, struggled with depression and wasn't sure why. In that loneliness, he said, I would drive through my old neighborhood. Bruce Springsteen, this Grammy Award-winning performer, said, I went to a psychiatrist and I said these words in exasperation. I know something is wrong with me, but how do I fix it? 
The psychiatrist responded to Bruce Springsteen. You can't fix it. Listen, you can't go back. Now listen to what he said. No kid can turn conditional love into unconditional love. Bruce Springsteen went on to write these words. He would often drive through the old neighborhood by his old home. He said, it, speaking of his father's house, he said, my father's house in that neighborhood forever haunted him. It stood like a beacon that called him in the night. So he wrote these words in a song called My Father's House. Listen to these words. He said, calling, calling, so cold and alone, shining across this dark highway where sins lie unatoned, meaning unforgiven. But listen to that psychiatrist's words. No kid can turn conditional love into unconditional love. You and I, for most of us, we've been scarred because everybody who loved us loved us based on a certain level of performance. And even a parent can be guilty of that, and that's the worst offense of all. But I thought when I read those words, no kid can turn conditional love into unconditional love. I thought this. I thought neither can you turn the unconditional love of God into conditional love. You live under as a child growing up in the family of God. Listen, you cannot, you hear me, you cannot take God's unconditional love for you and allow the enemy and allow you and allow your past and allow those people who loved you conditionally to cause you to take God's unconditional love and turn it into a conditional love. It is not. He died he paid the full penalty of your sin. Listen, past, present, and future. And you may go, as a man said to Adrian Rogers, walked up and said, well, if that's true, then I can sin as much as I want to. Adrian Rogers looked at him and said, sir, I'm sinning more than I want to. God changed my want to. You cannot take the unconditional love of God and turn it conditional. And you may say, uh, Brother Jeff, why are you saying this? Sheila was gone Thursday and Friday night, saying with some of the grandkids. I was there alone. Sometimes when you get my age, you start rehashing your past, all of the failures, all of the shortcomings, and you go all the way back to your childhood. We were back in my hometown of Titusville, Florida, Orlando, in that area, back in the summer, and I went to every house I lived in growing up with one question, what was wrong with my mom? Thursday night, I laid in the bed, and I did what I often do when I'm struggling with that parental conditional love because that's how it felt growing up. I remember one time a dear friend of mine, Hope Reagan, a behavioral therapist, we sat talking. Hope said, go back and listen, go back and watch all of the videos, all of the old movie projector films that have been taking, taken and look back through them and watch your relationship of your mom to you. I did. When I went back, I cried. Hope said, what's wrong? I said, my mom touched me one time on top of the head and patted me. Some of you in this room, the reason that you have such great difficulty with the grace, the mercy, and the unconditional love of God is the reality is you've never known it. 
and we're scarred. President Johnson LBJ said this. He said, we grew up poor, but worse. He said, my mother placed unfair expectations on him, made him feel like he had to earn her love, that her pride in him was contingent upon his succeeding. President Obama, scarred by his dad. Joe Biden, Donald Trump. Do you realize that nearly all of our presidents have been scarred by their past and by some form of parental love? You ask, why was Abraham Lincoln so distinct? Listen to what Abraham Lincoln wrote about his parenting. He said, it is my pleasure that my children are free, happy and unrestrained by parental tyranny. Wow. Tom Hanks described asking his children. He said, what do you... Tom Hanks said this. He said, I look at my kids and I ask this question. What do you need me to do? Regardless of their age. He states to parents, you offer that to them and you say these words, I will do anything I can possibly do in order to keep you safe. He said, put your hand on your child, offer that up and love them and let me add, love them unconditionally. When you've got a rebellious child that's breaking your heart, you go sit down and look at him and say, you have the potential of sending me to my grave, but I love you unconditionally. And let me say this, God loves you unconditionally. Daily Dad, a book written by Ryan Holiday, made this statement, make sure that your kids know that there is nothing they have to do to earn your love. If you don't hear anything else, you listen. God loves you unconditionally. He loved Abraham when Abraham tried to sell his wife off as his sister and lied. He loved Rahab when she was running a brothel in Jericho. He loved them both. He took polar opposites. Jew, Gentile. Honorable, dishonorable. He just took them polar opposites and he put them in the body of Christ, in the family of God. And when you and I come to God through Jesus Christ, we begin a journey of unconditional love. You may say, well, wait a minute, I still sin. Hey, I do too. I do too. But when I'm battling, when I'm, when I'm struggling, when I'm falling victim, when I'm battling like you, listen, you know what I do? I do this. Confess your sins. Homo legeo in the Greek. I just say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm wrong. God, forgive me. And you may say, well, I've done that so many times. You know, remember when Peter said, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? Jesus laughed and said, 70 times seven. You remember when, G, when they asked to teach us to pray? Jesus said, when you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. A model prayer. Every time you pray, you're going to have to ask for forgiveness. Why? Because we are under the power. We are no longer under the power of sin. We're being set free of that, but we're still in the presence of it. And boy, it's tough, isn't it? But he loves you unconditionally. I hope you know that. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you. And Lord, we love you and we praise you. Lord, we thank you that, dear Lord, real faith, dynamic faith, the faith that saves us, 
the faith that keeps us eternally secure, the faith that comes through the repentance of sin and the blood and the faith and the trust that comes when we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as the song says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. Lord, we thank you that you forgive us, that you cleanse us, that your mercy and your grace, the Bible said your mercies are new when? Every morning. Let's say it out loud. Your mercies are new when? Every morning. When? Every morning. When? Every morning. Every morning when I get up, your mercies are new. When I get up and stand up inside of my bed, and I don't, I fall to my knees. Oh, God, help me. He wraps his arms around me. says, okay, mercies are new today. Let's get started. Unconditional love, grace, and mercy that holds me in the palm of his hand. And oh, when I sin, he says, Jeff, I won't let you live like that. I'm going to have to discipline you, son. But oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. Lord, I pray today if there's a man or woman, young person, teenager, boy or girl, who, God, you've spoken to their heart. They've never known what it is to be loved this way. So it's hard. Some have been scarred by a parent who they loved, but they only loved according to how well you lived, how well you did. It's all about performance. They don't know what it is to be loved unconditionally. They've been disappointed even by the people closest to them. Maybe they've been hurt in a relationship. Maybe hurt in marriage. Maybe hurt by a dad or a mom. Maybe hurt by somebody that they thought, surely this person will love me unconditionally. But, but they didn't. And I just couldn't perform good enough to get it. And as Bruce Springsteen, this rich, wealthy millionaire, Grammy Award winning in the lonely streets of his neighborhood at night, crying out, God, why? Why? I pray, dear Lord, that he and others will know the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we begin to live and enjoy that. And I pray, dear Lord, if there's a man or a woman, boy or girl, that says, I don't know, I've never been saved, that Lord, right now, that you would wrap your arms around them, speak into their heart truth, begin to break away that old fleshly uh, bondage that holds them captive and and dear Lord, right now, introduce them to the grace and the mercy and the goodness and the love, an unconditional love that they've never known before. May it now flow through them and set them free of the bondage of the enemy. May they be saved in this moment by saying, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and forgive me. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. And may they begin a new journey. And what a life. What a life. What a life to be loved that way. So Lord, may they be set free of whatever memories and hurts that they carry. And may, dear Lord, they be born again today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. You come. If you prayed that prayer, if you ask Christ to come into your heart, if you need prayer, you come. May never, never be a moment like this moment. You come. You come.